Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Welcome to the Habitat Podcast, the podcast for wildlife habitat management, hunting strategy, and land stewardship. And now, your host, Jared Van Heeves. Welcome to the Habitat Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Van Heeves, and thank you guys for coming back for another great episode here today. We have none other than as others refer to, the OG of the outdoor podcasting uh, world, Mr. Mark Kenyon from Wired to Hunt and Meat Eater. Um, Mark's been on the show once before, and we have him on here again, guys. We are talking um, everything 2021 fall hunting trips. Uh, We talk about what habitat to look for when you're going out of state or in state on these new property, new visits, new hunting trips. Mark has quite the schedule ahead of him this fall, and we pick his brain on Idaho, we pick his brain on Iowa and other states on what Mark looks for. We talk about trail camera strategy, we talk about scrape hunting, we talk about, you know, what Mark's been up to since we interviewed him last. We talk about the Back 40, the meat eater uh, slash NDA property here in Michigan. You guys have probably seen that on the Sportsman's Channel, on YouTube, uh, the Meat Eater YouTube Wired to Hunt. Uh, we're doing like a Back 40 series this fall of podcasts where we're going to try to take people, you know, through what the, the Back 40 and Field to Fork program is all about. We cover that with Mark here again today. We talk about some top things that Mark learned while working on the Habitat on the Back 40 project. Pretty great episode, guys. Uh, Mark's a pro, and we just really enjoy catch, catching up with him, and and hope you guys enjoy this episode as well. Now, like I mentioned, we're going to cover the Back 40 in a series of podcasts. Uh, we talked about it with Chad and Brad Harper, Chad Thalen, 
a while back. Now we have Mark. We're going to cover Hank Forrester on the back 40 with a visit that I did out at Corey Francis's farm. You guys have heard from Corey a few times. So more podcasts coming up. We're going to you know, keep recording this and keep showing you guys what that Field to Four program with the NDA is all about, recruiting new hunters and doing it in a way that works and has a lot of science and information behind it. And what we need, guys, more hunters, more people like us managing habitat. So stick with us. Great episode for you here tonight. Now, I want to tell you about a new sponsor we have on the show, a partner of ours, Mr. Lowell Larson. Now, if that name sounds familiar, it's because we interviewed Lowell way back. Lowell was on episode, I believe it was 53. Let me firm that up here. I have it right here. It was... 53. Yep, that's the one. He invented a product called the squirrel. Now, the squirrel gets its name from the you know, device, but what it does, it plants nuts. This device plants acorns, plants nuts. We interviewed him way back in 53. Go back and check that out. And then now he has came out with a new nut planter, if you will. Um, it's called the 1.5. This is a one-and-a-half-inch diameter nut planter for larger nut species like your chestnuts. So, guys, we're going to have Lowell on an upcoming podcast, but I want to tell you all to go check out the squirrel over at nutplanter.com and go back to episode 53. Listen to Lowell. He's a great gentleman, full of knowledge. I interviewed um, while we were camping a few years back in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. He came over to the campsite with his son. Lil Larson Jr., and we had a great conversation. Again, episode 53 with the squirrel. We covered, you know, nut planting, seeds versus seedlings, TSI replanting, you know, planting acorns within like two seconds, two, three seconds. You can plant an acorn underground to where squirrels and rodents will not find it and dig it up. And it's a great product. He's got a patent on it. It's just really entrepreneurial of him, and I'm proud of him for coming out with this and, and, I've always wanted to come out with a product like that. It's pretty awesome. So, Lowell, welcome. Thanks for being a partner of the show. And, um, guys, check him out at nutplanter.com. It's called The Squirrel. Now, I also want to talk about some great reviews we've had. Um, Most people leave them on Apple iTunes, which is a link below. You can just go to Apple iTunes and hit the five-star, type something nice. We love it. Um, I found a, a new website the other day called Podcast Addict. Um, it's been around for a minute. We have some good reviews on there. Here's one right here from uh, our friend Joe Demarzik. The best podcast out there. Keep up the great work. Joe, really appreciate that. We're going to get you a, a free decal coming your way soon. Uh, we have another one here from Dano. Great guests providing tons of useful information as well as some fun stories. Jared and Brian ask engaging questions. Thanks, Dano. I appreciate that, guys. And and this just goes to show there's other spots out there you can leave us reviews that, that really helps. Um, here's one more from R5 Mills. This is back in 2020. Great podcast. They cover a wide range of topics that are very helpful and informative. Would recommend this for anyone who is just buying a property to someone who has had a family property for generations. You know, I agree, Mr. Mills. That's, that's what we're trying to do here is just help inform everybody as we learn as well. So thank you all for your, for your great reviews. Um, guys, I got a new batch of stickers in. Get those out here real soon. So we just appreciate it. If you can help us out, it really does help us. 
if you go down, grab that link below, go ahead and leave us, you know, a five-star and, and type out something quick and nice um, on whatever you're listening to, Apple, iTunes, or Spotify, wherever you listen to your podcast. That really helps. And that's all I ask. Thank you so much. It takes two seconds. And, um, you know, be sure to leave your full name or, or your email or something, and I'll be able to send you a free five-inch decal. Guys, we just we need that, and it really does help, so thank you very much. All right, so the last thing I want to talk about, we have some cool stuff coming. Now, we have some new partnerships coming up. I just mentioned one there. we got a couple more coming up that we'll get to here as we launch some more podcasts. We have some new content coming. Brian is heading up the YouTube channel, as he does, and we have some self-filmers, a team of us, are going to be putting together content, you know, starting a, a new group of guys sharing content on the Habitat Podcast YouTube channel. If you're interested and you film and you can film Habitat projects and you want to film your hunts, you know, reach out to us. We're looking to build a team of guys and gals. We're looking to pr- produce more content. You know, I'm sure you guys are sick of seeing our ugly mugs all the time, so we're, we're looking to get some new stuff going. Um, you know, feel free. The, the, our email, info at habitatpodcast.com, I-N-F-O, info at habitatpodcast.com is below. And then, uh, you know, also at the same time we're looking to build this team, we're also looking to hire on an intern or two. So if there's anybody out there who has a, a college student or, or even a high school student, someone who's looking to, to get into the digital marketing and learn about, you know, social media marketing, digital marketing, building, you know, a brand. We're looking for some extra expertise, you know, more than what yours truly knows about it. And, um, you know, we can offer some help, get you into the outdoor industry, um, maybe take you to a trade show or two with us, do some cool stuff together while you help us learn and we help you learn. So anybody knows of a possible college intern, um, love to chat. Uh, again, our email's below. Looking for that in, you know, the digital marketing space, um, you know, looking to work with some people that, that know a lot more than I do. So, guys, if you're interested in either self-filming or, you know, becoming part of our YouTube team or part of the internship where you're part of the podcast, you help us build this brand, you know, we will return good grades and good favors in any way we can and help you learn and we learn as, you know, we build a cool program together. So we're just looking to really grow the brand, get out there more, and you guys have been a huge help with your reviews with your shares on Facebook, your shares on Instagram, the tagging in the stories. All that helps is what I'm trying to say, long story long, and uh, we're looking for more help. So hit us up. And um, without further ado, let's thank our last partners here, and we'll get right into the episode. I want to thank Packer Max Colt Packers, Killer Food Plots, Michigan Whitetail Pursuit, Exodus Trail Cameras, Realtree United Country Land Pro Lake States Realty and Auction, and Morse Nursery. Thank you very much once again, my loyal listeners. We love you. Really appreciate it. Here we go with Mark Kenyon from Wired to Hunt. Okay, guys, we are back. We have, uh, as always, the co-host, Brian Hallbly on the line. How are you doing today, Brian? I'm doing well, Jared. Got a day off, getting some stuff done down at the Ohio lease, and, uh, just taking a break while the rain's falling here. Well done, well done. And then uh, we have a returning guest. We have Mark Kenyon from uh, Wired to Hunt and Meat Eater. How are you doing today, Mark? I'm great. I appreciate you having me on. 
Of course. Well, thanks for coming back. We must not have screwed up the first episode if you're back, so that's great. Um, <laughs> yeah. You, you were on episode 67 way back when, and uh, you know, just just thanks for hopping back on. Yeah, excited to chat. I uh, I enjoy any chance to talk whitetails and planning for the season and all that good stuff. At this time of year, that's fully consuming every ounce of my being, so uh, I'm all for it. That's great. Are you back in Michigan currently? Yeah. Yep, we got back two weeks ago, I think. Okay, just in time. Yeah, that was the plan, get back and have a full month of chaos, getting all the <laughs> final pieces in place, and then uh, and then you're off to the races. Well, are you um, are you caught up? Are you on schedule? Uh, I would say I'm on schedule with an adjusted to-do list. Like I had to kind of adjust my to-do list from previous years to, to be a little bit different just given all all these different things I've got going on this fall. So, um, so yeah, I, I'm caught up enough, but my to-do list was maybe less ambitious than it has been in past years. Maybe that's, that's what I'm trying to say. So, I mean, that makes sense. It's like time management, possibly. Instead of trying to fit 100 things into one, maybe, you you know, figured out how to do it correctly where I'm still at the 100 things into one type thing. <laughs> yes, yes. I've, I'm, I've realized now that it's not necessarily always about getting more done, but getting the right things done. So that's been my mantra this year is trying to prioritize appropriately and, uh, you know, not kill myself over every tiny little thing that I possibly could do, but just really nail the most important things and then uh, use that other time to prepare for other stuff or get in that important family time now before the fall starts or whatever it might be. Sure. Sure. That sure. sounds like a good idea. Now, so what you've been up to? Um, how's life? How's the family? You have what, two kids now? Yeah. Two kids, two boys. One's uh, about a year and a half old and our oldest is about three and a half years old. Uh, so they're doing great. They are a handful. Keep, Keep uh, my wife and I very busy. Uh, they're getting into the outdoors. Everett, my oldest, is really into everything hunting and fishing related. So uh, he's got his little bow and arrow that he's always shooting at the fake deer on our wall. And he's, you know, guys rattling antlers in his grunt tube. And so there's often some deer hunting role play going on at the house. And the biggest, the biggest news is that my youngest has now discovered how to be a buck. So Everett, my oldest, will... <laughs> have the gun, the pretend gun, and the rattling antlers or something. He'll start rattling, and then my youngest, Colt, will grab a pair of, like, I don't know, drumsticks or something and pretend they're deer antlers, and he'll put those on his head, and then he'll walk around the house going, bah, bah, bah. <laughs> and then Everett will go, kapow! And then Colton now knows to keel over and lay down on the ground. <laughs> so that's great. That's great because now I don't need to pretend to be the deer. So this is this is big news <laughs> in the Kenyan household. Way to delegate responsibilities. That's awesome. <laughs> yep, it's all about time management, right? Just push it off on someone else. <laughs> good to hear. Good to hear they're doing well. My, my son's the same way. He just turned three, and and he likes to you know pretend shoot everything, including including me and yep. and the deer on the wall. So I'm not sure how to feel about that yet, but I'm trying to train him towards the deer on the wall more, but uh, mm -hmm. yeah, it's just an awesome age. You know, I'm, I love two and three and four. It's just great. Oh, yeah. it's It's been a ball, and uh seems like new fun things pop up every day as he gets older and we get into new phases. 
So how about um, anything with with work or what you did over the summer? You you go out west for the summer, correct? Yeah, we've got a little cabin out on the Idaho-Wyoming line, and so we were out there from May through the end of July, and that was that was great. Wow. That's our time where we get to do a lot of family time stuff. You know, my wife's really into hiking and boating and all that kind of stuff, and uh, that's our time to do those things. So, yeah, we live out of the cabin, and we do a lot of fishing, do a lot of hiking, do a lot of camping. Uh, we bought a boat this year so we could do some some floats down the river, so we did that a lot. That that turned out to be kind of the success of the summer because um, a lot of the other things are much more difficult these days with two little ones. Uh, but the boat was something that was not too challenging. We could still kick back and enjoy it while the kids were on the boat having a good time, and so we did that a lot. Um, did some scouting for a whitetail hunt I'm doing out there. And, um, yeah, you know, just uh, – got to really scratch the itch on that other half of my passions um, that I have. So really thoroughly enjoyed that. And uh, then we got back, like I mentioned, got back at the beginning of August to, to get after the whitetail stuff. And did you catch a bunch of fish out there, or how'd you do? Did pretty darn good. I mean, considering I don't have a lot of, like, dedicated fishing time, it's usually like I can get out for an hour and a half after the kids go to sleep at night. Or, like, we'll all go as a family somewhere and, can fish a little bit while also trying to watch the kids a little bit. Um, so considering that most of the time it's like that, I had some pretty good days. I had I had a lot of fun, caught a good number of fish, and um, the best thing is that you can just get out, you know, here and there for little bits of time, and and that's fun where you can get out every other day or something and just be out in the water. Um, you know, that's that's definitely rejuvenating for me. So um, that was great, and then simultaneously that we were. Launching a bunch of new stuff at work with Wired to Hunt, so a lot of exciting things on that front. Uh, so it was a it was a big summer. That's great. And anybody who listens to your show, Mark, knows that you've got a pretty decent list of destinations lined up for this fall. Where are you heading? Yeah, it's uh, kind of absurd this year. Um, I start out in Idaho on a public land whitetail hunt. And then Michigan will kick off October 1st. I'll hunt the first couple of days here, and then I take off for Washington, D.C., doing some urban bow hunting in Virginia and Washington. And then after that, go to Arkansas for a mule-back muzzleloader hunt in the Ozarks, and then leave about a week later for Iowa for a Iowa rut hunt. And then I leave directly from that for Nebraska for a public land on the ground spot and stock whitetail hunt with a bow and then come home for about a week and then leave for Maine and then in Maine I'm going to be tracking deer in the snow and then after that come back for a week and then leave again for Texas and go to West Texas and uh, do some hill country rattling and try rattling some bucks out there and then come back for about a month and then back in January, going to go to Wisconsin uh, for more of a typical Midwest uh, late season hunt. So uh, busy, busy. Yeah, I'll say a lot of people will say, "Hey, I got a pocket full of tags," but it sounds like you got two pockets full. Yeah, maybe a backpack too. <laughs> <laughs> so, how are you managing all this as far as scouting goes? I'm sure you have a lot of help with with some of the trips and meeting up with some locals there. 
but how are you managing the scouting as far as the ones that you're kind of carrying the load on a lot of that? Yeah, so six of those trips are for a new show that we're filming. Um, and, and basically it's, it's kind of, uh, kind of like a take on what I do with the Wired Hunt podcast in that we are meeting up with these diverse individuals from all our, all parts of the country that have a really unique and compelling and successful way of, of hunting deer. And so I'm not scouting or doing anything for those six trips. Those six trips I show up and I'm having basically a master class learning experience with these people. Um, Very cool. So, so I'm entering into their world and following them around in their world and trying to learn what they do and dissect what they do and break that down. Um, so in those places, I'm not scouting. I'm just going to spend a day with them, learn as much as I possibly can, and then I need to, again, go and guinea pig what they taught me the rest of the trip um, with only what I learned over that day, day and a half to, to fall back on. So, um so those are a little different and that there's not much preparation. It's going to be the learning and preparing on the fly once I get there. Um, but then there's three hunts that are just mine, and uh, that would be my Michigan stuff, and then the Idaho whitetail hunt, and then the Iowa whitetail hunt. Those those are normal hunts. And uh, so, yeah, scouting for that, uh, each one's a little different, I guess. Iowa and Idaho both have followed a similar pathway in that, both of those trips, I have, um, you know, done a bunch of map scouting and just picked out different places that I thought have high potential, either because they look great in the maps or because I have some history in these areas that would lead me to think some of these spots would be worth putting more time into. So did some e-scouting, and then I was at both locations in the spring, one in March, one in May and did some spring scouting just to ground truth what I saw on the maps and to verify and to, to see what kind of sign was there from the previous fall. And then that led to me pinning more things on my maps, and I came back in the summer for both locations and hung some summer trail cameras, did some glassing to try to get eyes on deer there, uh, picked out a few trees, picked uh, pinned those on the maps so that I'd have a starting point for when I kick off those hunts. Um and and that's you know kind of the extent of it um when i both of those hunts will be fully just run and gun mobile setup type things so no pre-hung sets nothing like that i'm going to show up on day one and uh hang my saddle and sticks and and adjust and observe and move from there um so so yeah scouting has been you know what you'd expect a lot of map work and then covering ground on foot checking out those key areas, a um, little bit of trout camera work, a little bit of glassing, and uh, and then it'll be in-season stuff. So i got to imagine the habitat compared to Idaho all the way back to Iowa has got to be pretty different. Maybe you could walk us through the differences that you're seeing and the challenges and then maybe relate back to some of the things that are similar. Yeah, Um so Idaho is is different in yeah they're they're very different. Idaho is river bottom country, so you've got a big river that runs through a valley, and then around that river you've got the the best cover around, which would be cottonwood trees and Russian olive and different brushy shrubby kind of stuff. So the thick cover is all in these river corridors. Um, this river corridor is pretty big compared to some places I've hunted. So this is, you know, I don't know. Um, it could be 
could be a quarter to a half mile maybe of cover, depth of cover from like the outside out of it to the river. Um, and then you've got cover on the other side of the river too. So it's it's not it's not as constricted as some places I've hunted like this. Um, but what that does do is it does make it relatively simple to know where these deer are bedded. They're bedded somewhere in that cover along the river. Um, now it's a long river. There's miles and miles and miles of frontage. And like I said, it's, it's big and thick stuff, but you know that they're going to be bedded on that side and that they're going to be heading out to feed, feed in these crop fields uh, that are irrigated on the other side. So it's, it's a pretty simple bed-to-feed type pattern. Um, so I know What kind of crops do they have in those crop fields? Where I'm specifically, there's, there's a lot of alfalfa, and then there's actually corn, which okay. is pretty, pretty unique out in this part of the country or that part of the country. Sure. Um, but they happen to have corn in this particular spot. Um, so yeah, they're, they're heading from the north, heading south, then going north again in the morning and then heading south again in the afternoon. So, you know, that basic pattern is, is simple to, to adjust to. It's just a matter of figuring out where specifically that line of movement is coming through. Um, and that's a little bit trickier because they do have a very long breadth of space they could be coming in and out of. Um, on the flip side, when you go to Iowa, of course, that's your standard ag farmland type country. Um, but very hilly, very uh, pretty rugged terrain in the part of Iowa that I hunt. So while there's tons of options for these deer compared to Idaho, what is there that's nice is that that terrain funnels deer movement in relatively predictable ways. So while I don't have simplicity of a riverbed where they're all bedded and a, a alfalfa fields where they're all feeding, uh, I do know that when there's these ridge systems and there's these saddles or these um, points coming off of the ridge, I know that deer will use those things in ways that I can make assumptions on and hunt off of. So um, so those are the types of things that give me a starting point. When I start scouting and when I start hunting, I'll, I'll go in there and have an assumption about the terrain. Like, okay, these deer are probably betting on these little knobs off this ridge, and I think they're probably going to take these two cuts down that are the only way you can get down from the top to the bottom of the fields are because there's nearly sheer rock cliffs. So there's there's always some kind of terrain or habitat um, influence that I'm looking for to give me that starting point. I think a lot of these things are, are give me a point A, and then from point A I can watch and learn more and study more, and then I'll know where to go next. Um, but you really want to have a, a well-thought-through point A. And so that's what I've I tried to achieve with with both, both of these locations. And, um, and, yeah, I mean, one's an early-season hunt. The, early, the Idaho one, so that's a you know a bed to feed kind of hunt, and then the Iowa one's a rut hunt, so that's going to be uh, pinch points and cruising locations and doe bedding area kind of hunt, uh, your standard rut procedures. So they'll both be very different in style and feel. They'll look really different, um, but they're they're both going to be fun. I know that, so uh, so I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, Mark, I know uh, Iowa sure is a magical place, and I never hunted Idaho, but I think um, think you have that sort of pattern figured out decently with all your Montana hunts. Uh, I take it it's a little bit similar to that, to those. Yeah, very, very similar. The only, the only difference is that, kind of as I alluded to, this is like a, a bigger, bigger river system, gotcha. so it's, it's definitely not as cut and dry as it had been in some of those Montana places. Uh, and then secondly, there's actually a lot more hunting pressure in this area of Idaho than I had in some of those other locations. So um, 
it's it's been more challenging than those places, but at the same time, there's good deer numbers and opportunities. So I, I'm I'm willing to work around that and you know try to figure some stuff out because I think the potential's there. Sure, and and in Iowa, um, let's dive a little bit deeper into what you're you're looking for there. I, I know you mentioned the the ridges or, or knobs off of the ridges, so maybe your secondary ridge. Um, what makes you pick a specific one to focus on, or are you focusing on a certain type of habitat that's on that secondary ridge or that knob, like thicker than thin, or or what are you seeing when you get up top there? Yeah, well, I should clarify when I'm talking about like bedding and stuff. That's not something I'm actually caring about much for my hunt. That was kind of like the hypothetical thing I was throwing out there. Really what I care about on my hunt for this year, since it is just a rut hunt, I'm just able to get there for a week. Um, I'm more so looking for, you know, rut travel. So rut travel and then just knowing, like, where do I think these does are bedding? Um, and so in one of the properties I have permission on, um, it's, it's a property that I that I like the looks of and that I want to focus on this year because it doesn't look that good. I think a lot of people would look at it and be like, ah, there's better. There's way better looking stuff around here. There's all these other properties around here, big timber and these big ridges and all this just diversity. And um, I think when people look at this farm, they're going to say, oh, there's mostly just crop fields on this property and a couple draws that run through it, and that's not enough to hold deer. Uh, but I think that that's not the case. I think that this is a property that will be overlooked. I hope it's going to be overlooked compared to some of the other spots. Um, I know that one of these other farms I've hunted in, in the past year, and it looks great, and it looks awesome, and it's like the obvious property, but I think it is obvious to everyone. And so because of that, all the people that have permission on this property go hunt that spot and pound it to death. Um, this other parcel, I think, is is less likely to have that happen because it just doesn't look as sexy. And I think that's just fine, especially during the rut. So this property has got mostly just big crop fields with a few fingers of cover that run through it and a few of those intersect. So you basically have these lines, these thin lines of timber and brushy cover, and then they, they kind of wind across. Imagine like a couple of these crossing the property and crisscrossing. So there's a couple of these lines that cross a big rectangle of fields, and those lines cross in three different points. So I've got three points of intersection um, where basically you have a long funneling pinch point that all comes together with another long funneling pinch point. So those three spots where those lines come together are just dynamite obvious rut cruising locations that I think are worth hunting. Um, And then another thing that happened recently is that some of these crop fields were actually planted into CRP recently since I was at this location and scouted it last. So I think there's going to be some really nice doe bedding areas that I right away know, okay, perfect. This is dynamite kind of by the textbook doe bedding. They're going to be in this stuff, and I can hunt down wind of it. And so there's another obvious rut-type location. Um, so when it comes to rut hunts, I've tried to – I've, I've definitely been guilty in the past of overthinking things or overanalyzing things or trying to get too fancy with it. And what I always need to remind myself is to just keep it simple. During the rut, man, just find funnels, catch those cruising bucks, or find those doe bedding areas, those doe hot spots, and be there because the bucks will be there too. Um, and once you get to one of those types of spots, you can fine-tune. You can find the spot within the spot, but it should always go back to one of those two categories. If you're not checking one of those boxes, you're 
you're thinking too much and reading too magazines or something. So that's uh, that's what I'm looking at, and that's you know that's going to be my focus. No, well said there. I think um, a lot of us can be guilty of of overthinking stuff, and I know you've talked about it in the past. But I think that's a couple of good tips there. One, you know, to keep it simple, it's the rut. Look for funnels, you know, like you're talking about, and then. Two, you hit a, a good, a really nice tip there about the, the overlooked spots, if you will. Like you said, you see a big, big river bottom with, a, you know, an oxbow and a pinch point and a big piece of timber. That's usually people's first spot they want to go check out in that sort of country um, or, or similar country. But if you can get off the beaten path a little bit, I mean, honestly, your field and tree line situation sounds like it might even be a better sort of pinch than some big timber. You know, oh, yeah. rut, rut wise, right? Definitely. It's gonna be a dynamite dynamite pinch point. And so as long as there's not like nine other guys that all have the same <laughs> ideas I have and they plug up every different end of that those lines, as long as that's not the case, I think it it'll produce. Well, we'll do you a favor. We'll we'll wait to launch until after deer season if that works, huh? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's that's great. And I think um during the rut, are you focusing on any water locations at all i know the weather can be um warm sometimes during the afternoons out that way are you finding any water holes or anything like that for the early season hunt did you say uh for the rut oh for the rut so for the rut um i have a couple little isolated water sources that i found that i do have marked as locations worth checking out for sure um that's not um it's not the very first thing i'm looking at but it certainly is a kind of value add. So, for example, I found one of these little isolated water holes pretty darn close to one of these intersection points that I liked and where it looked like there was some got to be some doe bedding. And so that right there screamed, I mean, that screamed this is a good location. So that's one of the spots I pinned is possibly like a day one starting point for the whole trip because it looked, looked so good. You've got this, like I described already, three different funneling kind of lines of timber all coming together into this grassy, brushy kind of hub. And then just off of that hub, maybe 70 yards, 60 yards, is this little, little uh, I don't know, 20 by 20, maybe 10 by 10 um, water hole. So, yeah, dynamite. I mean, I think a lot of us have seen that when these bucks are cruising all day, they're definitely interested in finding a way to stop by a water hole throughout the, you know, late in the morning or early in the afternoon to get a little bit of a drink there. So that certainly is, is a way to stack the deck even more in your favor. So, so I love this spot because it seems to have the bedding, the pinch, and then this little kind of ice cream stand of a water hole right next to it too. So, you know, if it was just a pond in the middle of nowhere and there weren't a lot of other things going for it, I wouldn't necessarily look at that as the top spot. It certainly would be a spot to consider, especially if we got into a really hot day during the rut. Um, but it wouldn't be the spot. But when I've got that on top of the other two really important factors, now all of a sudden you have a, a best of both worlds. You've got that Venn diagram, three different circles all overlapping right there. And uh, that's the kind of thing where you can really put yourself in position for, you know, any one of those things could be the reason a buck comes through. And if you've got all three, now you've got three great reasons that buck could come through and, those are the kind of odds you want to get when you're, you know, trying to pull off a hunt fast like this in a relatively pressured place. Um, so, yeah, there's there's two spots kind of like that that I found and um, did a little scouting and snooping around each of them, and I feel comfortable with, 
with some ways to set up. And uh, I, I think I'll definitely be spending time watching both to some degree. Very nice. So are, are you um, adding an even, like a fourth circle to your Venn diagram? Anything with any mock scrapes to entice or enhance these areas even further? Or are you pulling a Michigan, is what I call it, where you're just sliding in, not touching a thing, and just sitting back quietly? Yeah, it's, it's more so the Michigan. Um, the only thing I would be doing is where I hang cameras. I will be hanging cameras either on a current scrape or for some reason there's a dynamite spot that is not a scrape yet, I would create a mock scrape. Um, so as I'm hunting throughout the week, as I'm traveling from place to place, I'll be, you know, I'll have a couple cameras in my backpack at all times. And when I find something I want to keep an eye on, I will uh, deploy that camera and um, do something like that. But otherwise, yeah, otherwise not touching anything. Like I, I made my visit in August. I'm not going to return until Halloween. I'm not going to touch anything. I'm not going to, you know, do anything crazy until I arrive. And when I arrive, uh, you know, we'll be do, doing scouting as I move through. I'll be scouting my way in, scouting my way out. If, you know, if my first day one observation point is not, you know, indicating that I'm in the right zone, I'll get down and move and find new places and go check out my plan B and my plan C and, and scouting as I go from each. Um, so so hopefully that's the extent of what I need to do. Uh, otherwise, not not adding anything else to the landscape. So Mark, you mentioned cameras. Walk us through what your camera strategy is going to be in Idaho when you get there for the hunt and also for Iowa. Yeah, uh, so basically I want to have eyes in a couple places that I won't be able to cover with my own eyes. And I want to be able to get that, though, in a way that's not going to add any unnecessary uh, impact to the landscape above and beyond what I'm doing when I'm heading into hunt. Um you know, if this is if if I was brand new to either one of those locations, had never set foot on them, had never had any time there, maybe I would, you know, maybe it'd be worth it to to do a walkabout, um, and and put cameras in all sorts of places at the beginning of my hunt. Um, but in both of these situations, I have gotten to already scout in the off season, so that's that's a best case scenario, right? Get to walk around sure. already. So I don't need to cover everything. So if I don't need to cover everything on foot, um, for any reason. Other than to put cameras up, I'm not going to do it just for those cameras. So what I will do is um, I've got a couple cameras out on both of these pieces or both of these areas, multiple pieces. Um, both of these areas already have some cameras out that I've placed in the summer. Um, if I am going to be passing by one of those locations when I'm heading to hunt a spot or near to it, I'll swing over and grab that as, as early as I possibly can. But I'm not going to, like, go in there day one and plow through stuff just to get to that camera. I, I feel like I've got enough of a idea of what's around and what's happening that I can just start my plan, start my process, and get up in one of these first stands where I can watch and observe and, and be in the game, and then I can adjust based on what I see. But that said, cameras will go up. Um, that early season hunt in Idaho, you know, my hope would be that as I'm slipping in to hunt one of these couple areas I know I want to start with, there are a few other areas that I'll be passing by that have potential as well. And so I'll be hanging cameras, you know, on the, the trail or the funneling um, feature that will hopefully get the most deer to pass by a camera location on their way from that bedding to that food. So, for example, you know, there's a spot that I already have a camera, but if I didn't place one here, this would be a spot I would definitely think to, um, there's like a 
there's a fence that goes along the edge of an alfalfa field, and there's one gate opening. It's like very, very obvious. That kind of thing I would want to throw a camera up on as I pass by, even though I'm not going to hunt it on day one because there's an even better spot. I think that's a place that, you know, throw a camera there. As I walk further down, as I'm moving from east to west or west to east, um, and I find another one of these main crossings that I'm not, you know, I don't rate it as my top one or two, but it's maybe that like number three or four type of option. Uh, at least that's what I think. That's another spot I'm probably going to hang a camera. And so I'll, I'll probably bring, oh, I don't know, maybe two more cameras of me out there. And there's two already sitting out there on this Idaho section. Um, so I'll probably deploy two more. And then, you know, I'm only going to check them if I'm passing by in and out to hunt. Or, you know, if I find myself halfway through the hunt or three-quarters of the way through the hunt and nothing I'm doing is working, I can't get eyes on anything, then I would be willing to just, okay, i got to check these cameras right now, midday. I need something to work with. I've got nothing. We need something. And so, you know, you'll get more aggressive then and maybe pull all the cameras if they're not telling you what you want and redeploy them in a brand new area and do something kind of rapid fire. Um, but that's, that's a last kind of a last, uh, last resort type situation. Um, and in Iowa, similar, I've got a handful of cameras up already. Um, I'm going to, yeah, I think as I'm saying this, I think the big, theme of what I'm trying to say here is I don't depend on cameras. I don't look at cameras as being like my hunt revolves around them. Um, they are the little boost that will help me sometimes. They're that sweetener that will give me a little more confidence. I want to have them up and they might give me a clue. They might tell me that what I was doing is actually wrong. Um, but like some people I know will put their cameras out and then they're checking them every day or every two days and, and they're constantly adapting how they hunt based on what those cameras tell them. Um, I'd, I'd rather not be that dependent on them. So I'm going to be hunting and making my hunting decisions primarily based on what I see on the ground and what I see when I'm actually up there in the tree. Um, and then every once in a while, yes, the cameras will help push me in one direction or the other, but I'm not, I'm not overly um, in bed with them. So I'll get a few out. They might just end up being super helpful, but they might not at all. And I, I would feel just as confident. I could go out there without the cameras and probably do just as fine. Um, so that said, I, I still would like them out there and I still want to be able to take advantage of maybe I do get that clue or maybe I find myself halfway through and really scrambling. I've got that as a backup. Um, or if nothing else, I'll just check a couple of cameras when I get started and I'll be like, oh man, there's this nice buck and this nice buck. And that just gets you excited and maybe helps you focus yourself a little bit in the beginning. Um, yeah, I guess the only other point I would add to all that is. Uh, the early season cameras I talked about, right, those are on, like, bed-to-feed type travel corridors, relatively simple. Um, the main thing there is that's public land, and so my one thing I'm doing a little different is that while I want these on these obvious bed-to-feed type traveling spots, I also want to make sure that other people don't see those cameras. So I'm trying to put them high up in the tree, angled down. I'm trying to get them off the main beaten path so they're not right where other humans might be walking by try to tuck them back in some cover. Um, and so that, that's what I'm doing even in Iowa because the Iowa stuff I have is by permission that other people hunt too. So I'm doing that, but the Iowa cameras are going to be placed more in those rut-type features and always on the scrape because uh, that time period when they're going to be up there, hopefully it'll be bucks checking those scrapes still or at least had been leading up to that point. So that's, uh, that's a high-level overview of what I'm doing with the cameras. Um, 
you know, the one other thing that I didn't mention at all that might impact my camera strategy a little bit is that um, I'll probably bring a couple cell cameras out too. And that changes things because obviously you don't need to check them. So I think that the Idaho spot I'll be in, I'll be able to get a cell camera to work. The Iowa spots, the camera services or the cell services is really, really, really spotty. So it seems like you might be able to get one single bar service when you're up high on a hill, but anything down in these bottoms or draws is just a black hole. So I'll have one with me probably just in case I happen to find a place I really like that has that service, but I won't depend on it. Uh, but, man, if it happens to play out and work out that way, I'll certainly be happy because those are obviously super helpful to have and, and easiest to use. Well, Mark, if that's your high-level camera strategy, I'd love to understand the micro level. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe it, maybe it went too long. <laughs> no, that's good. I'll, that'll be more Perfect. of a, a six-pack around a campfire to get all that micro-level stuff out of you. That's that's great. I think where you hit at the end there, I, you know, unless you're running the cell cameras, um, I think you're you know you're probably relying too much on on that sort of thing and probably hopping around too much instead of focusing on one area and really picking one area apart. So um, nice job with that response there. Yeah, it, it's, it seemed to work for me. So shifting gears here, I know you got a bunch of new stuff going on. Um, I want to get to the new stuff at Wired to Hunt. Uh, first, so let's let's hear about anything new at, at the back 40. I, I was recently down there, did a podcast with Chad Thalen down there in that in that deer blind next to the honey hole. And, um, nice. Just love seeing all your switchgrass popping and looking great, and and uh, the habitat work you've done. It was my first time there, so it was pretty cool to see. And uh, I just want to, you know, find out what's what new is going on there, and um, what people can look out for. Yeah, that, that's awesome. I'm glad you got to get out there and check it out. Uh, I'm really excited about the progress. You know, from year one to year two, uh, all the work that I've been doing out there, we saw some real strong progress, and it was exciting to see last year that we really seemed to turn around when it came to deer activity and deer numbers and, and even the bucks that we were starting to see. Um, that was awesome. And and also the fact that a lot of the changes that we tried to implement that would hopefully help other critters um, seemed to be taking hold too. We were getting a lot better traction with our, you know, diversity in those old fields, for example, or the prairie grass in the honey hole. I mean, that came in really nice. So a lot of the things that I had not done before previously um, that I was just learning about on the fly it was really cool to see that come to fruition. Um, so then, uh, as most people know, we, we gave the farm to the National Deer Association. And so now this year, they're, they're stewarding it, and I get to sit back and watch. And that's been nice. Uh, and it seems like they're doing some cool stuff, you know, planted more native grass, planted, um, you know, I think increased the size of the food plots pretty significantly in a couple areas. And I think that's great. I think that'll help. Um, planted think more trees I actually haven't been able to get back there this summer since their big project days so I haven't seen it yet um, but I've been hearing good things I've been seeing some trail camera pictures they've been sending it looks like there's you know there's activity which is great um, and I know the bees are still going strong which is exciting and glad glad that's continued uh, I'll be returning actually when we're recording this this weekend I'm going this Saturday for a mentor event with a bunch of new hunters and we're going to give them a tour of the property and teach them about the habitat work and how the wildlife uses different features and talk about how we set it up to hunt and kind of use it as a, as an educational template to hopefully help these new folks. So I'm excited about that. I think that'll be really fun and 
really cool to see the property being used in that way. And then uh, finally, I'll be back in December as well for for a hunt with some of those people. So this is all part of the Field to Fork program through NDA and uh, excited to be a mentor and help some new people out there. So that's what the that's what the whole dream was for this, was that we could use this farm for a couple of years when we owned it as uh, you know, as, as a place to showcase some of these ideas and, and the real-life struggles of trying to improve and steward a property like this. Uh, and that's what we did for two years of the Back 40 show. And uh, we're really excited that now the NDA can can use it as a as a real, you know, testing ground and educational ground to to bring out new hunters to have a place that they can go and hunt and learn and and share these you know great moments with other people and, and hopefully bring them into the family into the fold. And uh, you know, I remember a couple of years ago when I was mentoring um, another field to fork event. I was with my buddy Josh and he was managing a lot of these programs across the Midwest. And he just talked about how every year the big challenge was finding properties to do these events. These events were great. People loved them. People wanted to help out, but it's just hard to find good properties or good public land that would be, you know, productive, that would give a new hunter the opportunity to go out there and, and see deer. And as you guys know, uh, if you're a brand new hunter and you have one of those encounters where you see a deer, or you see a buck or, you get that blood pumping. I mean, that's the kind of thing that hooks you. That's the kind of thing that gets your fingers into you and you never can, can get it out. And so uh, our hope was, you know, the back 40 can be that kind of place where you bring a new hunter out here and they all of a sudden have this really incredible experience with wildlife and they all of a sudden realize, wow, like this is awesome. I just saw four deer come walking by at 10 yards. I've never had my heart pump out of my chest like that before. I need to do this again. Uh, so I'm hoping that we can have a lot of experiences like that in the property, and I'm really glad that the NDA and all the volunteers have, uh, you know, been able to keep that legacy moving forward. So, so I'm excited about that. Now that all sounds awesome. I know um, I'm actually going to be mentoring the fall hunt, I believe, based on now. I can't make it this weekend on Saturday, but the fall hunt, I, I want to give back and, and try to get somebody new in there. I had a couple of people I know even sign up for the program, so it's – it's pretty neat to see, you know, the the amount of work and, and volunteers and, I guess, organization that, that goes into this. Um, Hank Forrester over there at NDA, I think we're going to have him on here soon to kind of talk about a little more in, in depth on this and, and you know, get some, some goals up there and talk about the new hunters. But that's, that's pretty awesome. And, you know, rolling with the back 40 still, um, you mentioned a few minutes ago you're seeing more – things pay off with with your habitat work since like year one or even since the year before uh why do you think that is and, and what are you seeing that's paying off more specifically habitat wise yeah and, and i mean i think the big thing was that year one um it was very much like a trial by fire learning experience uh both with what the property could handle what you know as simple as what kind of food plots would take, as simple as what kind of deer browsing pressure there would be, as simple as would this technique work or not. Um, I mean, there was a million different things that I was trying that I had not done before or I had not done on that specific piece of dirt before. Um, and, you know, it was, just, it was just a massive learning experience. And so year one, we tried a bunch of things and a lot of it failed. And so year two, 
which was last year, we now had the second chance to take those learnings and go about it differently. And so we use different equipment. We use different planting techniques. We added different things. We, uh, you know, so one example was like the food plot screens. That was something I tried to do in year one and I didn't have equipment and I was in a rush. And so I tried to do like a throw and mow type approach where we didn't till, we didn't break the ground at all. We just sprayed, broadcast and mowed and hoped that I'd get a take on this, uh, you know, Egyptian wheat mix that I planted in year one. And what I didn't know is that while some people are able to pull that kind of thing off, um, we have kind of lousy soil in a bunch of places out there, and it is very resistant to anything like that. It's it's not the kind of easy planting situation where that kind of thing will work out. We didn't have enough weed cover to really get a good thatch, uh, and we didn't get enough rain. So all these things kept my food plot screens and screen cover on the outside of the property from coming in at all in year one. So everything was really wide open, and then we found out that most of what was in that these old fields, which 50% of the property is basically old ag field. Uh, in year one, it was just mare's tail, which once you get to the fall is basically just a beanstalk with nothing on it. So there was no food, no cover, no diversity in these fields, and then no screening cover of any type around the outside of these fields or anywhere to block anything in. So um, deer would not really want to travel out in the open at all. There was no reason to, and they didn't feel, feel safe doing so. Well, in year two, now that I learned this, um, I said, okay, we need to go about a different way of getting these uh, screens in. So when it came to the screens, I actually went back and conventionally planted the screens in so that there was, you know, there's no way I was not going to get those screens. And I had to get that in. That was really important because these it was my belief that these open fields really had to be segmented. They really needed to have some structure in them and some cover in them so that deer would feel comfortable coming out in the daylight. So I got those in at the right time with equipment, uh, no messing around. And, you know, they came in beautifully. They provided exactly the kind of cover and structure I was wanting. They broke up these big, huge fields into much smaller sections. And lo and behold, we had deer using them in daylight all the time, including the turbox. So it was a night and day difference there. Um, you know, we, we sprayed and killed as much of that mare's tail as we could and tried to add switchgrass and hopefully encourage a diversity of other native plants to regrow there uh, because we thought that would add diversity and cover to those fields. And that's something in year one just didn't even know we had to do. Year two, now we knew we had to do it, and I had a plan to do it, and it turned out great. The fields were just flush with cover and diverse amount of different plant life in there, much more desirable species, uh, much more food content, and, and that was something that helped out a lot. Um, when it came to the food plots, you know, I, what I realized in year one was that we got some plots in, and my big worry in year one was that, um, I didn't want big fields because I thought there'd be a ton of deer in the area and that, you know, our hardest thing would be, excuse me, I thought our toughest thing would be getting in and out to hunt without spooking tons of deer. So I thought just like tiny micro plots in here that, you know, won't congregate a bunch of deer in one spot and that will allow us to get around them. And then there'll be all these deer and they'll head out to the neighboring ag fields and we'll be fine. Um, well, what turned out is that there weren't as many deer in the area as we thought and we weren't giving them a good enough reason to hang out at all on our property. So in year one, not only were those fields lacking cover, but they didn't have enough food to encourage anything to come out even at last light. So we saw very few deer utilizing the small little food plots we had. So in year two, with that learning, decide, okay, 
Let's make sure deer feel comfortable in here with the screening cover, yada, yada, yada. But then we got to give them a good reason to hang out. And so we, I don't know, I think I three or four X the size of the food plots in year two. So we had something like, I don't know what it was, three and a half acres or something of food in year two. And, uh, you know, it came in great. And we had deer pouring into them. And a lot more deer visible throughout the entire hunting season because of that. Um, so that's just a couple examples of things that kind of failed in year one that I learned from, adjusted to, and changed in year two. And, you know, we just saw dramatically more deer. The trail camera, you know, report as far as what was out there even when we weren't was night and day. We, we had, I don't know, probably eight or nine different bucks that were likely three years or older um, coming through at one time or another. And some of them were there often. Um which was just, I mean, crazy different from year one uh, and crazy different compared to most places I even hunt in Michigan. I mean, that was dynamite. And, uh, you know, it was great. Led to my dad killing his first buck with archery equipment, and I killed a really nice three-year-old out there, and we killed some does and had some great opportunities for our guest hunters um, to have some close encounters and some great sightings. And, uh, you know, it was it was. To me, it was just an amazing illustration of what you can do pretty quickly. You know, in one year, we really changed how this place hunted and the types of, you know, experiences we had out there. And it wasn't with, like, very much big fancy equipment. I mean, we did all of that stuff last year. was done with a UTV, uh, a mower, a sprayer on the back of my ATV, and then I did have a little pull-behind no-till drill that I used behind that UTV. Um, but, you know, I mean, that, compared to a lot of things, that was not a lot of equipment. No tractor, no dozer, no nothing like that. Um, and we really changed our world there. So I guess it was proof to me that anyone can do it. Excellent answer. I mean, you covered a, a few different things there. And, and, you know, this whole podcast is trying to teach people that anybody can do this habitat stuff and, and the ropes there. Um, you mentioned screening, how that needs to be planted conventionally most of the time. I'm with you there. I don't, I don't try to no-till the screen. I go conventional with that. It seems to be my best um, results there. And then, you know, needing enough food to get them to stay. That's a great point. Um, on your one of your episodes on the on the back forty, I saw the L-shaped. Maybe it was sorghum. I think it was screening material that you had. Mm-hmm. Throughout your your fields, there was like one or two large L's in the field of of native grasses or or surrounding the blind. What was your strategy with that? Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. So what I did there was kind of uh, I wanted to break up these old fields, and I also wanted to provide that kind of screening cover in a way that might also make a couple of the features in those old fields more attractive as doe bedding spots. Um, I, I like the idea of, you know, a doe or two posting up on a couple of these spots and there's a, it's kind of hard to see in the film, but when you're on the ground, you can see there's actually a good amount of kind of topography to these fields. There's some big kind of rises and bumps and knobs on these hills. And so in a lot of cases, I wrapped like a, almost like a half circle of screening cover around every one of those knobs so that they would have this vertical structure alongside of this little knob so that it'd be kind of a place that 
you know, even prior to putting anything out there, every once in a while, I would bump does bedded in the grass on these knobs. They were already wanting to bed there, but it was just not great for most of the year. So what I thought was, let's add something that makes this much more attractive um, in a place that they already have a reason to be. And, and so that was part of the reason why I placed those kind of half circle or L-shaped um, lines of screening cover. And then also sometimes those were placed in spots to specifically block visibility in and out of the food plots and block that from my access routes. So I wanted to make sure that that cover would be in between where I would be walking and where the deer might potentially be if I had to slip out at last light or first light in the morning and uh, hopefully be able to navigate around the outside edges of the property without at least visibly spooking deer that were in those plots. So each, each one of those screening cover elements was placed for one of those two reasons primarily. God, that makes sense. I know, um, actually, you're right about the topography. I was surprised how much topography that property has when I went out there. This definitely does not come through on, on the film like it does when you're in person. Uh, a lot of undulation, which is awesome. Yeah, I, I really like that about it. When I first stepped foot on it, it that, you know, it just jumped out to me that this had a lot going for it from that perspective. Um, great sight lines for, you know, long-distance scouting, you know, a nice amount of topography that would, in certain ways, uh, move deer in a, in a certain way that you could kind of plan for. Um, so it was it was great from that perspective and, and really pretty. And every time someone new comes out there, they say the same thing, like, oh, wow, I didn't realize it was like this. So uh, for some reason, it just doesn't come across on the screen. Well, especially in that part of the state, you know, it's usually – pretty flat so to have that there is, is pretty neat i think yeah. um and i like your your sight line blocking on the topography with that that screening stuff also i like you said i think it gives you an edge inside the what could be monotony of of native grasses or, or whatever it gives you an edge of some structure inside the bedding which could maybe have deer back up against that did you see yeah. that happening at all yeah yeah and that, that that's that's what I was, was hoping that would happen there. They'd want to back up tight against that. And, and a lot of what I tried to do with those fields was, was easy to describe. I wanted diversity and structure. So it was, we added diversity through, you know, knocking out that monoculture of mare's tail and allowing what was native to come back. So we got diversity kind of by default once we did that. We cleared the plate and allowed the native diversity return. And then we added diversity by adding that, you know, that screening structure throughout. And then we added diversity by, um, planting little pockets of trees throughout as well. So we mowed, sprayed, and added in some trees in there too. So you had what was once, you know, let's say like a six-acre field of nothing but mare's tail mostly, all of a sudden now was six acres of, you know, goldenrod and pokeweed and, I mean, who knows, 10,000 different things that were growing in, in all over the place. And then you add in the screening cover, and then you add in, three different little pockets of cedars and pine trees, and then you add in a food plot in each one, and, and you all of a sudden have a, a, a buffet of food, a wonderful, you know, array of different opportunities for birds and bugs and rabbits to be hanging out and doing their thing and possible deer bedding cover. And, uh, I mean, each one of these fields really was a totally different kind of mini ecosystem in itself compared to what it was just, you know, 12 months prior. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun to follow along on the progress of that, and we're definitely looking forward to seeing where it goes in the future. 
Mm-hmm. Now, I wanted to shift gears on you, Mark, uh, something that's very important to Jared and I and to you as well. Uh, we've had a lot to celebrate the last few years, getting the Great American Outdoors Act passed. But uh, the work's never done, and uh, that, that's a good and bad thing. But uh, you mentioned recently on Wired to Hunt that we're going to be working on the Recovering America's Wildlife Act now. Uh, maybe go into a little bit of that, explain what it is, give the cliff notes version for our listeners and uh, what people can do to help. Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad, glad you brought that up. This is this is a big opportunity for us to kind of take a stand to help our nation's wildlife. Um, as you mentioned, you know, last year the Great American Outdoors Act passed, and that was a huge win for public lands and funding to manage and acquire and keep around public land and public land access points across the country. So that was very land-based. This new piece of legislation is very animal-based. So if if that first bill was all about making sure we have protected places, this bill is all about making sure we have funding to manage and uh, study and recover the critters that live on that land. Uh, so to simplify this as, as best as possible, this bill would create and appropriate a really significant funding source to each of our state wildlife agencies to execute on a wildlife management plan. Um, so there is a kind of a mandate for every state to put together a wildlife management plan that had been done a number of years ago. And um, sorry, um, sorry about that. Wife came into the office, wanted to make sure everything was okay. <laughs> um, so what I'm trying to say. What I'm trying to say is that the uh, every state wildlife agency was mandated to put together a plan to manage uh, their suite of wildlife species and then especially any threatened species, any species that weren't doing as well as they should be. Um, and there's a lot of those across the country, and every state has a different set of circumstances they're working with. Um, but there's never been the funding to really move on those. Um, this bill would just dramatically change the funding level that our state wildlife agencies have to work on that stuff. So this would be, I remember reading one description of this, that the funding that would come out of this might double the budget that the Michigan DNR has to work with on their management of wildlife. Wow. Wow. So all those projects that, you know, they want to do, like going in there and improving, you know, wildlife habitat on public land or providing grants for wildlife improvement or studying, you know, why our deer are struggling from CWD or whatever it might be, all the different work that these folks need to do that are going to help deer and more threatened species like, I don't know, monarch butterflies, which have been, which populations have crashed by 90% or songbirds where some of these grassland songbird species over the last 50 years plummeted more than 50%. Um, All these things that are all interconnected um, matter, even if you're just a deer hunter how all these other animals go impacts what we see on the landscape and how wildlife and whitetail populations can flourish and habitat improvements for butterflies and bees and birds absolutely makes for better habitat for deer and turkeys and pheasants, whatever it might be. So it's all interconnected. And 
this bill would give our agencies the money they need to actually do the work that we need them to. Uh, and as I think many people know, most of our agencies are really pretty strapped for cash. And the funding that they do get right now, a lot of it comes from hunter license sales, fishing license sales, ammo purchases, and that's good and it's great. And we do provide a lot of important funding, uh, but it doesn't even scratch the surface of what these folks need and what these agencies need. Um, so Recovering America's Wildlife Act would provide this massive funding source that then is going to get divvied out to each one of the states for them to actually execute on their plans. And the proposed funding source to do this uh, in the Senate version is wonderful. It's going to take the monies from wildlife um, offenders. So poachers, people who shoot deer without a license or whatever, all the fees and fines and monies related to that will be appropriated to this funding pool, which then will be divvied out to the states. So it, it seems very apropos that our wildlife offenders, those people that are negatively taking advantage of our wildlife resources, will be using that funding to then go back to help these animals and help recover wildlife populations that are struggling and make sure that populations of animals that aren't struggling stay that way. So this is something that's, that's been introduced to the House and the Senate. Uh, it has bipartisan support, so it's something that's got support on both sides of the aisle. It just really needs us, the people on the ground, to let all of our individual representatives and senators know that, hey, this is something we care about. This is something that I don't care what kind of crazy stuff's going on in the world we want you to focus on right now and push this thing through. And uh, there's hopes that that might happen this fall. Um, so it's it's kind of moving its way to the co committee now, and I think our job is to just keep our ear to the ground and make sure that when we know it's coming up for vote, either at a committee level or actually on the floor, that we really jump on the horn then and, and get after it because this is something that just as important as the Great American Outdoors Act was for land, this will be just as important, if not more important, for the wildlife that live there. So uh, so that's that's the cliff notes. Thanks for covering that, Mark, and, and we'll be sure to stay in tune. I know you at Wired to Hunt and, and Meat Eater both share that type of information, so if anybody, again, wants to be ready for how you can help, please follow along and, and, and pay attention to that. And, you know, wrapping this, this whole conversation up with you, I know you have been busy at Wired to Hunt recently. I mean, you got a new podcast going, the YouTube's on fire. Why don't you... Uh, wrap it up with what's new at, at Wired to Hunt and where everybody can, can follow along for you. Yeah, so, I mean, for, for a number of years, Wired to Hunt has been mostly just the podcast for the last three years, uh, but we're bringing back kind of the OG Wired to Hunt full landscape of, uh, of content. We've oh, man, the OG, all right. Yeah, we've, uh, we've relaunched a website of Wired to Hunt content, so that lives within the Mediator website, but if you were to go to TheMeatEater.com slash Wired, you get to our website version, and it's, it's everyday new whitetail content from a whole slate of different really great whitetail hunters who are writing this stuff, including myself and Tony Peterson, um, who were, were kind of running the show there. Uh, as you mentioned, we've relaunched the Wired Hunt YouTube channel with weekly kind of short, punchy educational videos. Uh, we've added a new podcast miniseries. Uh, which is hosted by Tony Peterson, just a, a dynamite DIY who is breaking down every week in a kind of short and sweet format some key foundational whitetail hunting elements that I think will help anyone 
Um, and we're, you know, working on two more TV shows here, which will be coming out down the line. So we're, we're pumping out a ton, just a ton of whitetail stuff, whether you, you know, love to manage habitat and hunt your private land or whether you want to travel out and hunt public land. We've got something for everybody. Uh, you can find it all, like I mentioned, on that website or just Google Wired to Hunt or search for Wired to Hunt in whatever your preferred place is, whether it's podcasts or Instagram or Facebook. We're all those places, and uh, we're, uh, we're just keeping stuff pumping out. The, the Wired to Hunt weekly newsletter is a great place to stay abreast of all of it, and you can sign up there when you go to the website as well. Incredible amount of content coming out of you guys, and uh, we know how much work that is. So, well done, and and way to way to do it on, on such a great level. Um, I know I'll be following along, Brian and I, and and a lot of our listeners as well. So, so I want to thank you, Mark, for for coming on. I've been gracious with your time, so we do appreciate it, and uh, good luck this fall, buddy. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks to you guys too. This is a lot of fun. Thanks, Mark. Thank you so much, listeners, for coming and listening once again to the Habitat Podcast. We really appreciate it. If you could, please do us a favor. Leave us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to this podcast. If you type out something nice, I will send you a free Habitat Podcast decal. If you haven't been to our website, HabitatPodcast.com, we have our Habitat property consultation services on there under the land plan tab. Check out our HP land plans there. We also have hats, t-shirts, and decals up at habitatpodcast.com. Of course, all of our podcast episodes. And then we have a new Habitat Podcast journal where you can learn about deer anatomy and some cool thoughts, um, you know, more of a blog post from us every now and then. We'd really love it if you went over to our Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube found the Habitat Podcast, and please subscribe. That really helps us. And thank you very much to our sponsors. I'd like to thank Exodus Trail Cameras, Michigan Whitetail Pursuit, Packer Max Cultipackers, Huntwise, Killer Food Plots, Realtree United Country Land Pro, Lake States Realty and Auction, and Morse Nursery. Thank you so much, guys, for tuning in once again. Get back with us soon. We're going to have another great episode for you as we become better habitat managers. Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Abyss Battery. Waypoint TV.